Many years ago, I had a very high opinion of theologians, so much so that I agreed with the quote that someone once said was that as philosophers and scientists and mathematicians and engineers climbed the mountain of knowledge and wisdom, that once they reached the pinnacle of the top, what they found was a band of theologians already there. And I had that high opinion of them. And when I was preparing for ministry as a pastor, I started reading things on systematic theology because you want to make sure that your theology is consistent in, in all of its ways. And so I had the um, opportunity to take a theology class in seminary, which then... I determined to have a much lower opinion of theologians because they seem to be the first ones to run from the word of God when there seem to be challenges. And they seem to take the word of God from the power of God to philosophy and argument. I think doctrines are important. I think what we believe is important. I think it determines how we then must live. Job's friends are caught in theology. And so the title of today's message is Theological Arguments That Do Not Reflect Job's Situation. You see, his three friends have one particular theological tool. And that's called retribution principle. They take that one tool, a hammer, and use it for every occasion. So they continue beating on Job with that one theological position. And I'm not saying that that theological position is not correct. The problem is that they have it universal application in universal situations. And what we know, because the beginning of the book of Job, that Job situation does not apply here and he keeps trying to tell his friends that it doesn't apply and they refuse to hear because all they know is their one hammer and this the sad thing in their perspective is that not only were they supposedly there to comfort and sympathize with them they've done anything but comfort and sympathize with them but on top of that when job when we've looked through these previous 19 chapters and how Job has gone up and down and I don't know where God is and he's, and when he is there, he seems to be uh, unjustly dealing with me because I'm, I'm a man of integrity and he doubts, but then he rises up and sees who God is. And then he questions and he writes, and just last chapter, Job made one of the most, fundamental declarations in all the scriptures that I know that I will, my redeemer lives and I will see him in my flesh. And even though he's presented that hope in God, his friends will go back to their theological argument. And so in Job chapter 20, verse one, if you have your Bibles, please turn to that. There are three series of 
discussions, if you will. Uh, we are now concluding the second series, whereas friends will say something and then Joe will respond and another friend will say something and Joe will respond. And so this is at the end of that second series. This is going to be Zophar's last participation in this. And so in the third round, Zophar is not going to take part. So it says, then Zophar, the Namathite, answered, Therefore, my disquieting thoughts make me respond, even because of my inward agitation. I listen to the reproof which insults me, and the spirit of my understanding makes me answer. So basically says is, Job, you have made insults of me, and I'm going to respond. I got to respond because you've insulted me, which I find it interesting because that's all they've been doing to Job is insulting him and insulting him and insulting him and accusing him of things he did not do. And yet, when he simply says, you guys are wrong here, they consider that an insult. So one of the things that I want you to kind of remember when you are counseling people, it's not about you. It's about the person you're counseling. You're trying to get them from one point to another point. And so come, oftentimes, rightfully or wrongfully, when you try to help somebody, they may attack you. But when you get all hurt and bitter about them attacking you, then you lose sight of what the whole point of you being there was to help them. And it doesn't matter whether it's addiction or what else. When you try to help somebody, they, they don't necessarily want to help you. Now, in Job's situation, he's not attacking them in the sense of, he's just saying, wait a minute, guys. If what you're saying is true about me, look at your life. Consider what you say about me and think about how that applies to you. And by that, they're insulted. And so he says, do you know this from of old, from the establishment of man on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless momentary? So Zophar starts to acknowledge one of the points that Job has been making, that sometimes, the wicked prosper. And that's all that Job was trying to say, is that there are, sometimes it doesn't seem fair. The wicked seem to prosper, and the righteous seem not to. And Zophar seems, but which is it? Zophar said, no, no, the wicked never prosper. But now he's saying, well, maybe they prosper for a little bit. But which is it? Do they never prosper or do they prosper for shortly? And if that's the case, then Job is winning the argument and he should not be insulted by it. Through his loftiness reaches the heavens and his head touches the clouds. He perishes forever like his refuge. Those who have, and I, refuge, nice way of saying human waste to dump. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He flies away like a dream and he cannot find him. Even like a vision of the night, he is chased away. The eye which saw him sees him no longer and his place no longer beholds him. His sons favor the poor and his hands give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it lies down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, he hides it under his tongue. Though he desires it, 
and will not let it go, but holds it in his mouth. Yet his food is in his stomach, is chained to the venom of cobras within. He's making some arguments that are that are accurate. He's saying that that the success and wealth and and good times of the wicked will eventually turn to devastation. And he's saying this not because he's agreeing with Job, but in essence, he's attacking Job saying, yeah, you were rich. Now you're getting what you're, you're entitled to. You prospered, but now you're, you're going to crash and burn. He swallows riches, but he will vomit them up. God will expel them from his belly. He sucks the poison of cobras and the viper's tongue plays him. He does not look at the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and curd. He returns what he has attained, and he cannot swallow it. As to the riches of his trading, he cannot even enjoy them. For he has the oppressor and forsaken the poor. He has seized a house which he has not built, because he knew no quiet within him. He does not retain anything he desires. Nothing remains for him to devour. Therefore, his prosperity does not endure. He's saying that the wicked will continue to consume and consume and consume. And pretty soon he'll run out and it'll all come crashing down. Which is interesting if you see some of the most wealthy families in the world seem to have held wealth for generation upon generation upon generation. And many of those wealthy individuals did not acquire that wealth in righteous activity. In the fullness of his plenty, he will be cramped. And the hand of everyone who suffers will come against him. When he fills his belly, God will send his fierce anger on him and will rain it on him while he is eating. He may flee from iron weapon, but the bronze bow will pierce him or the bronze arrow. Basically, as Job has said, God has been fighting against me and shooting arrows. He takes that imagery and says, yeah, God is the one firing the arrow. And when you get hit by an iron arrow, you're going to die. So he's, but his argument is all here and now. It's not a sense of reward and penalties in a life to come. It is always present. It is drawn forth and comes out of his back, even the glittering point from his bow. Terror comes upon him. Complete darkness is held in reserve for his presence, and unfanned, unfanned fire will devour him. It will consume the survivor in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart. His possessions will, the possessions will fall, fall away in the day of his anger. This is the wicked man's portion from God, even the heritage decreed to him by God. So, Zophar has no qualms about speaking for God. And what Zophar basically tells us and tells Job, if you've ever sinned, you're doomed. And you're doomed not only, but permanently. And you will see in this life that condemnation. Now, his theology is correct into this the scripture says that the wages of sin is death. To a point, he is hitting that. The problem is, is he thinks 
that the wages of sin is death, the paycheck comes now. Sometimes the paycheck comes now. But oftentimes, the paycheck comes in the life to come. That's why there is a judgment. And that's why God is just, and he will open the books and rule upon your conduct accordingly. So yes, the wages of sin is death. But he omits that he has the hammer. Hammer is great unless you need to cut a piece of wood in two. Then you need a saw. You might need a screwdriver. So yes, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. There is another tool in that. And his friends never discuss that. So even if Job is the person that they accused him to being, rather than saying, but Job, there is a gift from God. Take it. It's simply, you're doomed. You're doomed, you're doomed, you're doomed. So instead of the good news, they simply have the bad, terrible, and not so good news. Zophar will not respond after this. He said he had to respond because he was agitated. Maybe he just stayed quiet. So Job is going to respond in chapter 21. Then Job answered, listen carefully to my speech. So he's, he's saying, hey guys, pay attention. Because you've not understood a thing I've said. Let this be your way of consolation. Bear with me that I may speak. And then after I have spoken, you may mock. So basically, he's being a, a, a little, um, did you hear me going, listen to me, pay attention. And then after that, you don't need to mock me now. I'm going to let you mock me afterwards. But I'm going to answer, but listen to me. And all too often, we have a lot of people who hear, but nobody listens. Bear with me that I may speak, and you may mock. As for me, is my complaint to man? He's saying, am I, is my argument against other men? No. My, my complaint is that I feel God is treating me unfairly. And why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Look at my skin. Look at, look at what has happened to my health and my family and my businesses. And, and everybody, look at that. And instead of having some set of sympathy, look at me and be and put your hand over your mouth. My gosh. Even when I remember I am disturbed, and the horror takes me hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked still live? So he's going to counter, he's going to say, yeah, if that's true, then there are a whole lot of wicked people that ought to be dead now. Continue on also, become very powerful. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and the rod of God is not on them. He's saying, look, at, I've, I've seen the wicked. Their families are great. Their kids are doing fine. They're prospering. They're having all this success. What are, you, what are you telling me that they perish? 
They don't have fear. God's not taking his rod of correction. His ox mates without fail and his cow calves and does not abort. Everything, all the businesses that the wicked have, they prosper. They send forth their little ones like the flock and their children skip about. They sing to the timbrel and the harp and rejoice at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity and suddenly they go down the hill. As while they're living, life seems to be really great. Their kids sing and dance, not cared about anything, but then comes what happens to the righteous and the unrighteous. They all die. I've shared this before. Um, I had a, I, I read a will one time that said, if I die. And I find that amusing because there's only been two people in the entire biblical history that never died and neither one of them are with us and so but we we never like to approach that so we have all of our euphemisms he kicked the bucket he passed on he crossed over the river he you know whatever the euphemism is because we don't like to say he died it seems so final but guess what without god it is and suddenly they go down to the shore. So it's not like all of a sudden God has dealt with them during this lifetime and then they die. No, they die having been prosperous and their generations in prosperity. They say to God, depart from us. In essence, he's saying that they live such a life that they don't even want any part of God. And we know people just like that who aren't necessarily that rich. We do not even desire the knowledge of your way. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would we gain if we entreated him? This was written thousands of years ago, and you see it today. The same attitude. You're weak. You need a crutch called Jesus. But I'm strong. I don't. What does it benefit me? You're weak, so okay. You, you, you get along with the Jesus. Behold. Their prosperity is not in their hands. The counsel of the wicked is far from them. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Or does their calamity fall on them? Does God apportion destruction in his anger? Are they as straw before the wind? And like chaff which the storm carries away? You say God stores away a man's iniquity for his son. Let God repay him so that he may know it. He's going, wait a minute, guys. You're saying that when God decides that he's going to punish these people, he's going to punish the children and not them. And, and Job's going, that doesn't seem to be right. The wicked person ought to be accounted for so that he knows that he's departing from God. It's like, it's like the best analogy I can, can kind of give is, it would be like the oldest son doing something wrong, and then you spank the youngest son. So, wait a minute, what did I do wrong? Well, your older brother sinned. Then, then punish him. It ain't fair. Because we all know that fairness is what we all want. Praise God, I want mercy. Um, but, he said, but he goes, guys, that's not fair what you're talking about. Let his own eyes see his decay, and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care for his household after him? 
when the number of his months is cut off. And basically he's going, yeah, a person may really care about his children and his grandchildren. See, unfortunately, when it comes to reality, we all really care about ourselves. Because very few people plan. It's hate the government. Republicans, Democrats, whoever. Everybody spends the next generation's money. Because we want it now. We want the benefits now. And the fact that our children and grandchildren, great, great, great grandchildren may have to pay for it or will. At least I got what I want now. And that's what Job is saying is that, yeah, most people aren't all that concerned about future generations as long as it doesn't disturb them now. Can anyone teach God knowledge that he judged those on high? You speak for God. Can you tell God what's right or wrong? Can you, can you judge God's judgment? Then he, he comes full circle with his, with his point. One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and satisfied. His sides are filled out with fat, and the marrow of his bones is moist. There are some wicked people who just have it all. They enjoy life. They never suffer. That's some wicked. While another dies with a bitter soul, never even tasting anything good. Yeah, there are those who are wicked and are blessed. And there are those who are wicked and they never see anything good. I get it. But you keep saying it's only one or the other. And I see in, in the reality of life, both. Together, they lie down in the dust. And the worm covers them. Basically, no matter what the wicked do, whether you prosper or you're bitter, you both end up in the same place dead, and decaying. Behold, I know your thoughts, and the plans by which you would wrong me. He's already arguing. For you say, where is the house of the nobleman, and where is the tent and the dwelling places of the wicked? Have you not asked wayfaring men, and do you not recognize their witness? For the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity, and they will be led forth at the day of fury. Who will confront him with his actions and who will repay him for what he has done? While he is carried to the grave, men will keep watch over his tomb. The, I'm sorry, the clods of the valley will gently cover him. Moreover, all men will follow after him while countless ones go before him. So he's saying, take a look, guys. The rich and the powerful are even respected in death. We have graves and we have great markers about how great men and women have lived before. And we even have times where people will guard those tombs. He's saying, they don't deserve it, but they get it. And he's saying, just because somebody is wicked doesn't mean that they receive it immediately. How then will you vainly comfort me? For your answers remain full of falsehood. 
We go, okay, I've given you my position. Wicked men prosper, wicked men suffer. Wicked men go through their entire lives with prosperity. Some wicked never see anything good. That's why. How now are you going to counsel me? How are you going to? And at the, up to this point, they've never given him any sense of hope. See, again, because they only look at one principle rather than who God is. And that's why the purpose of this series is to, for us to know all of who God is. So that when one part of God seems to be a little clouded, we understand the rest of him and say, I can trust the part that I don't quite see yet. Or that I don't feel that it's being fair. But God, I know that you are. Jesus gives a wonderful parable in this very situation. Where Jesus acknowledges the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Now, some people think that this particular parable is a re real event. And others say it's simply a parable. Some say it's a real event because it gives an actual person's name. I don't know, but I'll tell you this. A, spirit, a parable is a spiritual truth. And if Jesus gave the parable, then I can bank on it. And so if you will look at Luke chapter 16, starting with verse 19. It says this. Now there was a rich man. And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Kind of sounds like the guy that, that Job was talking about. Wealthy, enjoying life. Everything was wonderful. Not only was rich, he lived like it. He let you know that not only could he buy you several times over, he could do it on his platinum American Express. He's just joyously living in splendor every day. What a life. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. So he's got two people. One who's so wealthy, he's just living life, the Vita Loca. And then we got another guy who is poor, sick, similar again to Job, who has sores, so much so that he takes broken pottery to scrape them off and ashes to give him some sense of relief. So he has these sores covering his body and he's hungry. He's not even saying just give, he's not asking for bread or lamb, or filet mignon, he's saying that I might just have the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sword, which shows the contempt, because in Jesus' day, dogs weren't cute and cuddly, and everybody had one. They were scavengers. They weren't your pet. So they they were more treated like, if you will, pigs in that society than how we do. For now, 
you'll see bumper stickers that says, I'm a pet, pet parent. Those are where we are. And so they're licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angel to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he being the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. So he sees a difference. Here's the poor man in paradise, being comforted by Abraham while the rich man is in hell. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and pull off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now I find it interesting. The poor man, Lazarus, is being comforted and the rich man is being tormented and yet the rich man somehow thinks that he can tell somebody to take Lazarus as a servant and serve him. He forgets his place. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Exactly what Job has said. The wicked will receive their just due, but not necessarily in this lifetime. And the righteous will receive their just due, but not necessarily in this lifetime. Now, I propose a question to you. Would you rather have great wealth now for a temporary period of time where, as I say, no U-Haul trailer ever is hitched up to your hearse? Or would you rather dwell in the house of the Lord forever where streets are, are gold and so even wealth is unimportant because that's just street material. That you live in paradise with God, pain-free, not suffering, where God himself wipes every tear from your eye. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over there, from there here to you will not be able, and none may cross over from there to us. The spiritual truth is this. Now, while you're alive, is the time you make the choice to accept the wages of sin or the gift of God. But you don't get the choice after. You only get the choice now. So that's why the wicked are in great peril when they say, God, depart from us. We're happy without you. Verse 27, and he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come also to this place of torment. Let me tell you, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, when I go to hell, there's going to be all my drinking buddies. We're all going to be happy and we're just going to have this great party. The greatest evangelists are people in hell. Don't come here. And he is telling, asking, Please send Lazarus from the dead so that my brothers won't come here. All of a sudden, he's the evangelist. 
But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. God's already given his word. He's given them the law and the Moses, and he's given them the prophets and all that is contained in the word of God. If Pay attention to them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And Jesus is point on because Jesus rose from the dead. He was in the tomb for precisely the amount of time that God's word said that he would be in the tomb. And then he rose and he walked around for 40 days and he was ascended. And over 500 people, among others, saw his resurrection. The word of God testifies, the spirit of God testifies of his resurrection. An empty tomb testifies of that. And still people will not believe. So what does it take? God breaking through. And sometimes unfair things happen so that God may break through. Or sometimes it says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. As I'm going to share next week, there are two unconvertible, un incontrovertible facts. There is a God and I'm not him. I can't tell you what God is doing all the time. I can tell you what his word. And his word says, if you're not his, become his. Now. If you're suffering, God knows and cares and will wipe away every tear from your eyes. If you seem to be prospering now, make sure you're being prospered because you're being blessed by the hand of God. And then thank Him. Why God chooses to prosper some and keep others in poverty. Sometimes the most beautiful children are the children nobody wanted. Why God does that, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not him. But I do know this. He's a just God. But he's also a loving and merciful. And as I've shared briefly, I don't want his fairness. I don't want him to say, okay, Joe, you have this much good and this much bad, and okay, I'll, I'll treat. No, I, I want all my sins to be forgiven and I want to be treated as his alone, totally justified, totally forgiven, totally glorified. And all of those things are only going to happen because of the gift of God through Jesus Christ in my life. Don't be like Job's friend who knows one thing. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yes, he does. And yes, he loves you. But what about the difficult times? You need to know that as all. You need to know the empty time and how to deal with that as well. When you're hurting, Scripture references a quaint 
but not necessarily comfortable. Make sure that your theology is applicable to the situation. Job's friends didn't, and they missed a great opportunity to not only encourage their friends, but to see the error of their way and to praise God for his mercy. But instead, all they saw was his justice. And those who, like the rich man here, will see God's and those who seek for God will find his mercy. And all God's people said,